Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians chapter 2 for this message entitled, Living in the Church as a Christian, part 2. Three Sundays ago, we began the study in Philippians 2, where Paul directs his attention to how believers in the church of Philippi should respond in the midst of a situation where they are in some degree of conflict with one another. And though this is written to the church at Philippi a couple thousand years ago, this is really here for our benefit. It's written for all churches at all times in all places, instructing us how to respond when we sin against one another, when we have differences of opinion and perspectives, and when strife and dissension threatens the unity of the church. And the short answer as to how we are to do this happens to be the theme of the letter as a whole, which is rejoice to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or to put it another way, to live in the church as a Christian. I use the title Christian there with its full meaning and import as as one who is a follower of Christ, one who is a disciple and an imitator of Christ. This passage we're going to look at today that we've started several weeks ago tells us that if we are going to preserve the unity and experience joy in the church, we need to embrace the mindset of Christ and follow his example of dying to self, knowing that God was pleased to raise him from the dead, and so he will raise us as well. This is the point of the text and this sermon in a nutshell. Let's read the text and then we'll dive in. Follow along as I read for the sake of context, verses 1 to 11, and then we'll focus on verses 3 to 8. Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men." Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A.W. Tozer begins his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with these powerful and penetrating words. What comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no man, no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact of, about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He goes on, by, uh, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Our text is a prime example of the direct connection between our view of God and how we live our lives. This command, or the commands in this text, are not given as best practices, or good ideas, or suggestions, or this might be helpful to you as a proven strategy. No, the commands in this text are given as a reflection of who God is. We were made by and saved by, and therefore we worship and serve a God who is not a, a grasping God. He, he is not a God who clings to things for fear of losing them. He isn't greedy. He's not covetous or miserly. Nor does He use what He has for His own advantage, seeking only to benefit Himself at the cost of others. No, our God is a generous God. He is a God who gives freely and openly and without measure, even to His own hurt. That is the God in whose image we are made. His acting out of that nature is what accomplished redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And this text reveals Him to be that kind of God and calls us to imitate Him. Before we dive into verse 3, let me remind you of what we saw several weeks ago in verses 1 and 2. Our outline that we began is that in verse 1, we see the motivation for church unity. The motivation for church unity. In verse 2, we see the mindset of church unity. And then in verses 3 and 4 today, we'll see the method of unity and verses 5 to 8, the model of unity. Look again at verse 1 to see the motivation of unity. Paul says there, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, a bunch of if statements, which you could say since statements, since these things are true and real. The motivation for unity is based on our personal experience 
of God's work in our lives through the gospel and the Spirit's active ministry in our life. In the midst of conflict, the the complex emotions we are experienced when we are at odds with the people we love are powerful. But we can look to the triune God who encourages us and comforts us with gospel truths. When we have contributed to conflict, for example, we can be reminded of, of the fact that our sins are forgiven and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we can be honest about our sin. We don't have to wallow in shame or hide in our pride. We we can be open and honest because our sins are forgiven. We are cleansed and free so we can confess our sin and seek forgiveness from those against whom we've sinned. When, When we feel that angst, that division and differing opinions in the church create, we can be encouraged that if God has reconciled us to himself, we can be reconciled to one another. We are also consoled by the love of Christ, he says. Though we have sinned against God beyond measure, nothing can separate us from His love. Right? God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And so if God has loved us in that way, how much more can we love those whose sin against us or whose even less than that differing opinions doesn't or can't be compared to our sin against God. The fellowship of the Spirit reminds us that God will never leave us or forsake us. And the power of God that dwells within us through His Spirit also indwells the people with whom we are in conflict. And so with that essential and basic unity, we can have hope for unity. And finally, we're reminded of the affection and compassion that our Father has toward us. God does not engage with us in a cold-hearted, apathetic, duty-bound way. No, His heart is compassionate toward us. He moves toward us with affection and care and mercy. He, He knows our plight. He identifies with our sorrow. The, the Spirit of Christ in us feels our pain and our grief. And so he feels affection and moves toward us in that time. And so having this kind of God that comforts us and encourages us and loves us and indwells us, that should motivate us to then move toward others for the sake of unity. That is our motivation. The mindset then is verse 2. Look again there. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In the midst of division and differences, each of us must first have as our aim to pursue God's way of thinking. Rather than being stuck in our own personal opinions and perspectives, we should aim to consider what would God say about this situation? How would God have me think? What are His priorities? What are His values in this moment? We are also then to be maintaining the same love, to having the same love toward others that God has had toward us. We were reminded last week, weren't we, about what God's kind of love toward us is. I remind you of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not become, uh, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God has loved us in those ways. And he continues today to love us in those ways. And so our mindset should be to love one another again as God has loved us. The the third mindset that Paul identifies here is to be united in spirit, which means to be of one soul with one another. The soul, the spirit, uh, the mind, the heart are all synonyms in Scripture. And it's, it's our thoughts, our beliefs, our desires, our, our values, our priorities, the commitments that we make, our volitional will. All of those things that we have should be increasingly shaped by the heart of God. We are all to be molded according to the same model, which is God's heart. And as we do that, we are then together being conformed to the same spirit. And then finally, our mindset should be fixed on that one purpose, which ought to be the the highest purpose of all believers, which is to glorify God. Conflict and division happens generally when, when one party or both parties are seeking their own way and their own ends. Conflict is not always due to sin. There can be just two believers who are at at cross purposes with one another. And so the solution is is to unite together under the common purpose of glorifying God. So that's the mindset and the motivation required as we pursue and preserve the unity in the body of Christ. You can go to the message from three weeks ago if, if you missed that to get more details and and see that in more depth. But let's now turn our attention to the method of church unity in verses 3 and 4. The method of unity in the church. These two verses give us the solution to all of our relational problems. This is how we overcome disunity in the church. Look at it. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If you're like me, you have read this many times. And perhaps when you read words like, do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, you think, well, that's a verse for narcissists. And clearly, I'm not a narcissist, so that doesn't apply to me. But I want to challenge you to consider that these instructions are for all of us because the core of the sinful flesh which remains in all of us, even as believers, is self-centeredness. And it is possible, in fact, quite common that we justify our selfishness on the basis that we have good intentions. And, and maybe we're, we're not necessarily looking out for my own personal benefit. I, I just happen to know what's best for everyone. 
So again, we assume our good intentions justify being closed off to the possibility that we are wrong. We assume that our interpretation of a, of a situation is unassailable, so we, we don't acknowledge the past, uh, the reality that others might have something to contribute. We believe that our opinion of what should be done is wisdom, and therefore every other opinion is foolishness. Because we're able to make observations and draw conclusions about what's actually going to take place, we assume that our thoughts of what is in the heart behind people's actions is equally accurate. This makes us unwilling or unable to consider that someone's motivations are something other than what we think they are. We sometimes conflate integrity with consistency, and so when we see someone change their mind or say something different than what they said before or or change their course of action, we assume they're being insincere or disingenuous, if not an outright liar. We give no room for repentance or growth or correction or maturity or plain old forgetfulness. Now, I have done all of these things, and you have too. We think these ways toward public figures, politicians, celebrities, pundits, and leaders. We often think these ways to, uh, toward those in our family, and those in the church. Why do we think this way? Well, it's because we are sinners. And again, sin is fundamentally self-oriented. And being self-oriented, we naturally assume that our thoughts set the standard for truth. Now, we know you're not supposed to believe everything you read on the internet, but we have not developed that same skepticism of the thoughts in our own mind toward other people. And to make matters worse, we act on our thoughts. We, we do things like holding court in our minds, laying out all the evidence to ourselves about what someone else has done, and we make judgments. And as a result, we, we hand out life sentences, locking people away in the cells of bitterness in our mind. We might tell others what we think about so-and-so, and we try and add to the panel of judges. And sometimes we might even bring God into our orbit and And we're only praying that God helps that other person see how right I am. With words or actions, we might tell the other person or communicate to them where they stand in our eyes. We we keep our distance. We avoid interaction. And sometimes we separate completely. All of this is rooted in a self-oriented heart that clings to our opinions and desires. We view our thoughts as more authoritative, our interests as more essential, and our goals as more important. This makes us unable to consider that there might be a completely different way to think about a situation that is equally valid as ours. Now, in contrast to that, the Spirit here tells us Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Your translation might say selfish ambition instead of selfishness, but the meaning is the same. It's 
that core idea of base self-seeking according to one dictionary. Or another one said, those who cannot lift their gaze to higher things. In other words, we are selfish when we forget that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and that God's ways are not our ways. We assume out of our selfishness that me and God have that direct connection and he thinks exactly the way that I do. Now, the word empty conceit or however it might be in your translation is literally vainglory. That would be the exact equivalent. It is the futile thirst for glory. It's desiring glory when you have no basis to receive it. It'd be like a player hoping they get the MVP award when they've just been sitting on the bench the whole game. But you know what? Such is the power and deceptiveness of sin that we strive for glory when we deserve hell. Among believers, it's the idea that we deserve to be heard. We deserve to have our opinions embraced, uh, to have positions of influence or prominence. But beloved, you know, we don't deserve anything. We live by grace and we deserve nothing. The first century Jewish philosopher Philo wrote, Vainglory, which lies in wait for a man, is an untamable wild beast, tearing and destroying all who give into it. He describes there the temporal consequences, but the Apostle Paul describes the eternal consequences of vainglory or empty conceit or selfishness in Romans chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, Those who are selfishly ambitious... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, receive wrath and indignation. These are serious things to be selfish or vainglorious. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having opinions, with having perspectives, or desiring a particular outcome. The problem comes when we cling to it and we grasp it. And we know we're doing that when we get discouraged or angry when our views aren't recognized or listened to or accepted. When we judge others in our hearts and develop negative attitudes toward them because they don't see things the way that I do. We can be certain that we've crossed the line into self-orientation and empty deceit, even if we're not doing it maliciously or intentionally. Now look again at verse 3 to see the alternative of this self-exalting way of thinking. He says, do not be, excuse me, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Rather than elevating ourselves and our thoughts and our desires above others, we are to cultivate a mindset of humility and think of others as more important than ourselves. Now, someone might be thinking, think of others more important than myself? Is that like a mind trick I have to play? (laughs) To, To tell myself, yes, this person is more important, even though I know They're no more important than I am. And maybe I actually am more important than them. No, no mind tricks are needed. What is needed is to put off a self-oriented way of thinking, 
to renew the mind according to the truth and to put on that humility of mind and act accordingly. When we think of humility, we likely think of uh, thinking along the lines of being uh, uh, that we're lowly. We're, we're thinking lowly of ourselves. It's the opposite of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now that is true. Thinking humbly is, in a sense, to think lowly. Now, if you've been well taught, perhaps you define humility along the lines of thinking of yourself with an accurate assessment in light of God's perspective of you. Viewing yourself from God's perspective. That also is true. The problem is, when we think lowly of ourselves, or we think of ourselves from God's perspective, we, we often think that the basis for thinking lowly is the fact that we are sinners. And sinners have no reason to think highly of themselves. And even though that's true, the fact that we are sinners is not the foundation of humble thinking or of humility. In his book, You're Only Human, excuse me, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Being sinners is not a foundation for true humility. For one day, for one thing, the, the day will come when we will stand before Christ and all the vestiges of sin will be removed from us, and yet humility will still be a quality that we need to exhibit. So, on what foundation can we think of ourselves in a humble way? How can you cultivate humility of mind no matter how righteous or how successful or how gifted and skilled you are? Well, no matter what else is true about you, you can develop humility of mind when you remember, listen carefully, that you have a belly button. That's right, a belly button. No matter what yours looks like or how visible it is, we all have that spot on our bellies that reminds us that we were once directly connected to another human being. And we were given birth into this world by a will that is not our own and by actions that we did not perform. You and I exist entirely and exclusively as a result of the will of God and the actions of a man and a woman, neither of which are us. More than that, we are alive today because our parents went to great lengths to keep us alive, both sustaining us with basic necessities and protecting us from the dangers of this world. But even when we got to that stage when we could feed ourselves and clothe ourselves, we never stopped being dependent on others. As I stand before you today, I am clothed and in my right mind because of a multitude of people in the present and in the past whose lives and actions have made it possible for me to be alive, to be wearing what I'm wearing, and to be able to speak with some degree of intelligibility. What I'm saying is this, we are dependent creatures. We are dependent creatures. We exist in a world created by God and designed by God such that His creatures have built-in limitations and dependencies. 
We are, of course, ultimately and completely dependent on God Himself for everything. This is the essential, or one of the essential differences between us and God. Acts, 25, Acts 17, verse 25 says, God, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He deserved nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is the only true independent being that exists, and everything and everyone else is dependent. Every creature, every living thing is first dependent upon God, and second dependent on others. In his book, You're Only Human, subtitled How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, Kelly Capick writes, Humility consists in a recognition of and a rejoicing in the good limitations that God has given us. It is not a regrettable necessity, nor simply a later addition responding to sinful disorders. Even if there had never been a fall into sin, Humility would still be an essential attitude or character of gratitude for our dependence on God and for His faithful supply of our need. Now we could go many directions with this, and he does in the book, which I recommend, about how this principle of dependence and a humble way of thinking works itself out in other spheres of life. But let's bring it back to the text and thinking about the context of conflict and disagreement in the church. When God redeems us, when He justifies us, when He adopts us, and He he places His Spirit in us, we immediately become dependent on others in the church. And they become dependent on us. No one Not one Christian has all the gifts and all the knowledge and all the wisdom and all the strength to live the Christian life before God in this world. The Spirit has given a variety of gifts and in varied measures to each individual believer according to His grace. The Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ in different ways, at a different pace, and increasingly over time. And the result is there is always someone that we can learn from and there is always someone who can learn from us. We all have different life experiences and wisdom and insight to bring to the table. And at the same time, we all have significant limitations that make us dependent on one another. So disagreements and differences are not the problem. The problem is when we view those who think differently than us as being less than us and not having something to contribute. We, we degrade others in our minds and elevate our own perspective and don't give consideration to alternative perspectives. Conflict erupts when I think I have the solution And I don't need to listen to your idea. Division takes place when when we clutch our thoughts and our desires and cut ourselves off from learning and correction and growth. 
by treating problems as a competition to see whose idea is going to win the day, we miss out on opportunities to come up with better solutions that would happen if we sought to solve our problems cooperatively. So we cultivate humility of mind when we loosen our grip on our own self-importance and open ourselves up to the thoughts and ideas and interests and needs of others. And we do that because we need them. We need them. I need you and you need me. We are dependent on one another. You have gifts and life experience that I don't have. And I have gifts and life experience that you don't have. And I know what mine are, but I may not know what yours are. So focusing on you is more important for me. Because you have contributions to offer that I desperately need. And even if we still end up in disagreement, which we might, we still have grown in loving one another and growing in understanding each other, considering things we hadn't before. So it's not a mind trick to convince yourself that others are more important than you are. Again, I am dependent on you for you to exercise your God-given gifts and abilities and knowledge so that I don't get stuck in my orbit of my limitations. If I lose you relationally, I lose out on experiencing your ministry, which would help me grow in Christ. This is what makes broken relationships in the church so painful and heartbreaking. It's hard for the body of Christ to grow in maturity when vital parts are taken away. And so Kelly Capick summarizes humility this way. Christian humility, first, recognizes God as creator and sustainer. Secondly, delights in the gifts of others. And third, gratefully participates in communal life, exalting the needs of others over our own. Exalting the needs of others over our own. That element takes us to verse 4. Look at it again. Paul says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now this sounds like a separate command, but really grammatically it's a dependent clause. It's explaining how we are to do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit and how we are to think of others as more important than ourselves out of a humility of mind. Most of our translations have the word merely or only there in the first half. If you have an NAS, you see that it's in italics. That means it's not in the Greek. There is no merely or only. It quite literally says, uh, each not looking to yourself, but also to each other. The principle is similar to the greatest, the second greatest commandment, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? We don't need to be told to love ourselves. We do that well enough on our own and perhaps too much. In the same way, we don't need to be told to look out for our own interests. That's going to happen instinctively. What we need to be told is to look out for the interests of others. Now, it's important to consider that sometimes we, we think we're doing this, when we're really not. Sometimes we we think we're looking out for the interests of others by thinking that our preferred outcomes 
and solutions and preferences would be better for everybody. But sometimes when we're thinking that, we're not thinking of people specifically. We're we're rather assuming we know what's best for everyone generally. And so we need to stop and think. Am I assuming that I know what's best for everyone? Or am I thinking specifically about the people around me and their particular needs? Am I considering the the spiritual maturity, the stage in life, the personal trials, the relationship dynamics that people have as I think about what would be solutions to our problems that we're trying to solve? Am I considering that this person needs me to affirm my love and care for them more than they need to hear my desires and my solutions? Just as an example of this general versus specific dynamic, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there were those who said every church in every place should disregard the government regulations. And there were those who said every church in every place should follow the government regulations. What many neglected is that every church in every place was situated differently. Different countries Different states, different counties even had different regulations. Different localities had more or less problems with outbreaks. And each congregation has different dynamics to consider for themselves. And each church's facility has different abilities to accommodate different solutions to the problems that every church faced. So it was not wise to expect a universal response to a common problem. But the thought that there should be a a universal response splintered many churches. And I'm grateful that that did not happen here at Hope Bible Church. Now, in the same way, as we work together in the body of Christ, we may well have different thoughts and ideas of how things should be done, what should be done, what we should should be thinking about and, and aiming for. But what we should look at the people of, excuse me, what we should look at is the people of God that he has placed around us and consider what are their particular needs or strengths or weaknesses. What are the opportunities and the challenges that exist here in this place, which may be different somewhere else? That's, that's what it means to look out for the interests of others and consider others as more important than ourselves. When we do that, whatever differences of opinion might remain, we will be in a better position to move toward unity and love. This is the method of unity in the church. Don't do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit for your own glory. But cultivating a mindset that we are dependent on each other, we should consider one another above ourselves. Now, this method that we're called to, obviously, is contrary to the sinful flesh that remains in us. And because of that, it's painful to do at times. And so we can find ourselves in situations where we say, Surely God doesn't want me to die to myself in this situation. There's no way God expects me to consider the interests of this individual, or at least those particular interests that they've expressed. 
we might even say, everywhere I turn, I'm having to die to myself. Would somebody else please die to themselves for a change? (laughs) Overcoming our self-oriented ways of thinking is not just difficult, it can be exhausting, especially when we have to keep doing it. And it can bring sorrow as our legitimate desires and interests keep getting rejected and ignored. Can I just say it's okay to grieve over not seeing things done the way you think they should be done? It's not wrong to think things aren't the way they should be and lament over that. You know, when Jesus and the disciples arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before he was arrested, he said this, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that Uh, what the consequences would be of not being selfish, not looking for his own glory, not not uh, preferring his desires, but rather considering others as more important than himself. He knew what all of that was going to cost. And it grieved him and distressed him. So it's not wrong for us to grieve and be distressed when we see decisions made that we don't think should be made or we see things being done the way we don't think they should be done or we see proposals rejected that we think should be accepted. But to both empower us to cultivate humility and to enable us to overcome our sorrow when our expectations go unmet, the Holy Spirit wisely inspired Paul to draw our attention to our Savior. He is our model in verses 5 to 8. Now, this passage is theologically rich, and it teaches us both about the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And often, this passage is misunderstood. So, There is no way we're going to have time to dig into it today. In fact, I'm just going to stop there. (laughs) I'm looking at the time and that's not going to happen. So I'm going to I'm going to end there and, and just let me say this as a bit of an awkward close. I'm trying to learn how to manage my time better. Let me read verses 5 to 8 and just make a couple points before we close. Thinking about this as our model of unity in the church. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I'll stop there. You note the word there at the end of, Verse 6, grasped in the New American Standard. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Again, there's a lot of misunderstandings of this passage. And next week, we will see, uh, we'll walk through the details of verses 5 to 8, if not through 11, to see the, the glory of Christ. And if you know someone who is unconvinced that Jesus was God, I would invite you, or I would encourage you to invite them to come because this passage is crystal clear that Jesus is God who took upon Himself a human body and human nature So He is truly God and human and truly man. And because of the fact that He is not one who who grasped His deity, He didn't take for His own advantage all of the, the things that were true of Him, that are true of Him as God, but rather He chose to make sacrifices for the purpose of accomplishing redemption. We can look to His example and say, that we don't just follow Him because we do what He did, as, as though His actions are simply what we follow. The model that He provides is His own character. That He is not a grasping God, therefore we should not be a grasping people. We are. He is not a God who... who takes all of his benefits and all of his possessions and uses them for his own advantage at the cost of others. And therefore, we should not be a people who who looks at our thoughts and our desires and our, our authority and our positions and our possessions and our ideas and uses them for our own advantage. Rather, we should be a giving God like he is. Excuse me, we should be a giving people like he is a giving God. That's what happens when you don't follow your manuscript. You speak heresy. thinking back to the quote by Tozer that I gave you at the beginning, as we grow in our view of God and learn His true nature, we will be moved toward Him. In in the words of Scripture, we will be transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's what it means to fear the Lord as we saw last week years we studied what what that is. It is to have our lives shaped, our hearts shaped by the heart of God. And so come back next week so we can study this person of Christ who is glorious and in whose image we've been made. Let's pray. And after we pray, we'll have the child dedication. Our Lord and our God, as as we have reflected momentarily on these truths, we can all acknowledge that we fall so far short of your character. Though we have been made in your image, we don't reflect your image the way that you have called us to do. We confess that we are often looking to our own interests We elevate our own thoughts. We think we know what's best. And we allow that reality to put us in conflict, in disagreement, in division with others, and sometimes even to separate from them. Lord, forgive us. Perhaps for some, this happened this morning as they were getting ready for church. For some, it 
happens in their small group or in their ministry, or it can happen with ministries trying to work together to accomplish events and activities. That can happen as we think about the future of the church and well, where we should be going collectively. There are so many opportunities for us to give in to the flesh, to hold on to our own ideas and thoughts. And so Lord, help us to see you clearly, to know you as you truly are, and to see how out of your character of giving and sacrifice, you accomplished our redemption. And help us to find in you the joy and the desire to imitate who you are. So that we can show not just one another, but even the world who our God is. May you receive the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.